Welcome to Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. I'm your lead investigator on this case, Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Every episode is an investigation where you and I explore true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. We discuss the cases, share information, no chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. Now, grab your crime scene kit, a notebook, and your favorite hat. This is Best True Crime Podcast. The date is 1995. The place is Liverpool, England. Your assignment is to investigate the case and help identify a man who committed suicide by setting himself on fire. We're in the town of Liverpool. The name Liverpool comes from the Old English liver, meaning thick or muddy, and pole, meaning a pool or creek. And this case we're about to study is just as muddled and just as dark as the city's namesake. The town's history can be traced back to 1190. It's located in northwest England, where the River Mercy meets the Irish Sea and the first known slave ship to sail from Liverpool departed in 1699. The last slaving voyage out of Liverpool left the dock in 1862, of a total of 4,973 such voyages. But by the 18th century's end, ships departing the same docks accounted for close to 50% of the Atlantic slave trade. Liverpool was once called the New York of Europe before suffering a blitz second only to London's in World War II. From the mid-20th century, the unemployment rate was one of the highest in the UK. Today, Liverpool is seeing a regeneration in culture, education, and employment, but some residents will tell you it looks quite different from the inside. Discrimination and classism exist in the UK, and its folks from Liverpool feel the glare. Liverpool was born a little fishing village. It grew into a port, and beginning in the 1800s, it matured as a major international trading and industrial center. It's a port town, and a distinct accent wove its way into the culture called Scouse. You can hear Scouse in the dialect of musician-songwriter Ringo Starr, for example, one of the members of, of course, the rock band, The Beatles. Some people have expressed the need to hide their Scouse sound when venturing to other parts of the UK to avoid discrimination. Now, there are two cathedrals in the city of Liverpool. There is a Liverpool Cathedral. It is the largest cathedral of the Anglican Diocese of Liverpool, and it's the seat of the Bishop of Liverpool. It has a tower height of 331 feet, 14 bells, and its tallest height at 116 feet. It's the largest cathedral and religious building in Britain. It is beautiful, and it's the eighth largest church in the world. The red sandstone building has 100,000 square feet. Construction began in 1904, and it wasn't completed until 1978. In 1910, one of the designers learned of the evangelical clergy's dismay with the decor, 
and the designer believed it was because, quote, a feminized building which lacked reference to the manly and muscular Christian thinking, which had emerged in reaction to the earlier feminization of religion, end quote. If you walk half a mile north, you'll find the Roman Catholic Metropolitan Cathedral of Christ the King Church. This, too, is a beautiful, beautiful church. So if you ever do get the chance to go to this beautiful city, then you can easily see both churches in one tour, and I highly recommend it. So it's not too far away from the other. Now, let's go to October 25th, 1995, and we're standing in front of the Cathedral of the Angelican Diocese of Liverpool. And we see a man, he is walking with purpose, and he's striding up to the Western Room's entrance of the Liverpool Cathedral. And he's not looking at the craftsmanship, or he's not caring about the history. He's walking with just this strong strides. Now, there are other people in the area, they're kind of milling about, maybe they're going to the store, maybe they're going from one place to the other. Nonetheless, they're braving this cold. It was a very cold afternoon that October 25th. It was about 4 o'clock p.m., so that's kind of when the night air is kicking in. So they're walking about, collars up, hands stuffed down in pockets, going about their evening's business. Very few of them look up, and they note that this man has a can of gasoline. I'm sure that very few people notice that in his other hand, he's holding a box of matches. Now, later this man would be described as possibly between 25 and 35 years old. He stands about 5 foot 6, 5 foot 7. He has blue eyes and he wears his brown hair in what in the UK is called a Mohican haircut. Here in the States, we would call it a Mohawk shaved down close, except on the very top, a stripe going front to back of hair. He's a thin build, and the only thing anybody can really remember of his clothing is he's wearing Reebok trainers or Reebok tennis shoes. So here he is. He's walking with quite the purpose to the Western Room's entrance of the cathedral. And right now, nobody's really paying that much attention to him. Just another fellow going about his business on the afternoon of October 25th. No one was really paying much attention, probably because they didn't see the matches in his hand. But soon, a trail of smoke is sleepily, lazily sort of creeping toward the sky. And then the smoke is sort of billowing and everybody starts noticing it that's in the area. And someone shouted, and a man named Peter McGabe, who happens to be in the area, realizes that there is indeed a... This stranger, this man with a gas can, has set himself ablaze. Peter McGabe runs to the stranger, whose body is now totally engulfed in flames. And McGabe is trying to beat out the flames on this poor individual, but it was obviously too late. Somehow... Somehow, because his throat is literally melting and his voice box is melting down, the dying man manages to tell Peter McGabe that his name is Kenny Williams and that he was from of no fixed abode. 
And then this dying man's last words as his body is melting, look after my wife and kids. Even if help would have arrived then, there was just no way this stranger would have survived. He is literally burned, melting into the ground. He had thoroughly doused himself with the gasoline from head to foot. He lived barely minutes after striking the match, long enough to tell McGabe that his name was Kenny Williams, he was of no fixed abode, and of course when he said, look after my wife and kids. Dr. C.P. Johnson was the forensic pathologist who examined the body, and his report read in part, The body is that of a thin white male with extensive variable thickness burns covering at least 90% of his body's surface. Only the feet are relatively spared. Witnesses would later agree they saw no one else around the man, no one was observed fleeing the scene. No one was seen walking with the man or fighting with the man. The man had indeed set himself on fire. Law enforcement began to attempt to identify the man. And this task has now turned into a case that is over 25 years old. Detective Sergeant William Sumner was on the staff of the coroner's report, and at a January 23, 1996 inquest, Sumner explained the stranger's fingerprints were checked against both local and national fingerprint records. And Sumner said, Inquiries have been made with various hostels for the homeless in the Liverpool area, local drug rehabilitation clinics, Department of Social Security, and local doctors and dentists who cater for the homeless, all without success. The man's fingerprints simply did not exist in any databases. Inquiries made with a local magazine called The Big Issue, which is sold on the streets of Liverpool and it caters for the homeless, have also provided negative. It just seemed like nobody knew who this poor man was. The only details available are those given by the deceased to the witness, Peter McCabe, who attempted to extinguish the flames on the body of the deceased. The man's face had been terribly burned, but the police put together a composite sketch and circulated it to all departments and to local publications, asking for assistance. It was very difficult to tell, but they did a composite sketch the, the very best that they could. And it is still difficult to look at or imagine what the man may have looked like in life. It's a very melted appearance, and the eyes and the open mouth are blackened, and the face really looks more like a generic rubber mask than a person. Now, recently, they've been able to run DNA tests on this man. No results. And as of today's date, he has never been identified. No one has come forward with an identity or filed a missing persons report that matches the man's description. Recently, the cold case has been reopened in the hopes of identifying this fellow. The name he gave, the information has never been confirmed. 
The only information the investigators can believe might be true is the man was homeless. So now it's 2022, and the investigators are no closer to identifying this man than they were in 1995, the day he took his life in, in this horrific manner. All anyone knows is Kenny Williams of No Fixed Abode and the dying man's last words, look after my wife and kids. He is case 03-001341 on the United Kingdom's Missing Persons Unit website. But somewhere, he's a son, possibly a brother, maybe a father, an uncle. Somewhere, he has a family. Let's look at a few clues that we do have. Let's look first at what the man said, what name he gave, or was it? The man was on fire. His, his body was literally shutting down. He was melting. He was, God knows the degree that his body was inside, how hot he was burning. Now, Kenneth Williams is a very common name in the UK. And Williams is one of the most common surnames in the Liverpool area. Or was it mispronounced? Did the witness hear what he thought he heard? The man was severely burned to include the throat area, and he had to be just mentally distraught. Could it have been Ken E. Williams? Could it have been a name that sounds like Kenny or Williams? Could it be he was speaking of a place and not a person's name, Kenya? Now, here's another clue. Kensington is the city locally, and it is often called Kenny by the locals. I did do some research and was told that the sentence he said of no fixed abode is the legal term in the UK for several things. I was told it's used for shipmen who have no permanent home. Let's say you're working on a cruise ship, you're an employee, and you live on board full time. You would call yourself of no fixed abode. And it can also refer to someone who just kind of lives place to place, like someone who travels a lot or somebody who travels for a living, just place to place to place. You would be considered of no fixed abode. Location. Think about where he did this. What role would religion play? The location of his suicide. Think about the location of the incident. Think about the religious aspect. Consider the church's view on suicide. He elected to kill himself at this particular church, not the other church, and he did it right outside the cathedral, outside the cathedral. The Roman Catholic Metropolitan Cathedral of Christ the King is only a half a mile away from the church he selected. Outside, right there on the steps. Liverpool Cathedral is the cathedral of the Anglican Diocese of Liverpool, the seat of the Bishop of Liverpool. It is the largest cathedral and religious building in Britain. Why would he select this church? Why Liverpool? He could have traveled 
He could have traveled to a major hub other than Liverpool, London, perhaps. Now, construction took over 70 years to complete and was massively expensive for a town that's had its ups and downs financially and emotionally. Did he watch it being built? Did he have a particular feeling toward the finances that went toward it being built? Think about what was said, you know, only so many years ago about the feminization of the church. Now, as an investigator who has done volunteer work on cases, who has searched for missing persons, I say a person's environment helps make that person. So, we're going to say he is from that area. We're in the town of Liverpool. The name itself doesn't come from, say, the most pleasant of visuals. Thick, muddy, gunky, water, liver, okay? Now, it is a beautiful city. It gave us the Beatles. It gave us that sound. And it is a gorgeous place to visit. It's a pretty town. Think about its history. The town's economy was built in part by one of the darkest times in history, slave trading. The city's economy has seen some low down times, such as the World War II Blitz, and some high times, such as being the New York of Europe. And you have current residents who have reported discrimination and classism among folks from Liverpool with a Scouse accent. Did the man have that Scouse accent? Did he feel discriminated against like some people have reported they felt discriminated against? Did he feel like he couldn't get anywhere because of where he came from or how he sounds? Liverpool grew as her port succeeded and enlarged for success, and a port town is always full of culture, crime, diversity. A port town is always a blend of humanity. Look at the states. Look at New Orleans. Look at Memphis, Tennessee. Culture towns. Also, sometimes considered very high crime towns. Memphis, Tennessee is always in the top three, for example, for high crime areas. A port city gives people a way to just disappear, to reappear, make a fortune, go flat broke. A port town always has kind of a scrappy personality. Now, how could that have affected our, our nameless, unidentified man? Was he part of that scrappy personality? Did he just show up one day with no ties? Has he lived there and he traveled and he returned? Was he looking for something? As of today, all we still know is on October 25th, 1995, at about 4 o'clock p.m., there was a thin man between 25 and 35 years old 5'6", with blue eyes and brown hair and a mohawk haircut, wearing Reebok trainers. He walked to the Western Room's entrance of the Liverpool Cathedral. There, he doused himself with gasoline, and he struck a match. And he died almost immediately. Witnesses believe he said his name was Kenny Williams. He was of no fixed abode, and to look after his wife and kids. 
and that is the case of a man who set himself on fire and died in front of a cathedral. Perhaps you will continue this assignment and be the one to identify this man. I hope so, because he was a person. He had a place in life. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will subscribe. Hey listeners, this is Judith A. Yates, reminding you that it is getting cold outside. And while you're inside staying warm, your pets should be warm too. Even if it's just the garage or in the barn, get your pets some hay or straw to curl up in to stay warm. You should keep your cats and dogs inside when the temperature falls below 40 degrees outside, even dogs with thick fur. Antifreeze is a deadly poison. It has a sweet taste that attracts animals, so be sure and clean up any spilled antifreeze. Check your car's hood before starting the car. Either bang on the hood or honk your horn, because cats and small animals will crawl up in the engine space to stay warm, and you don't want to start your engine with an animal in there. Clean off paws if you suspect your dogs or your cats have walked through rock salt because they'll lick their feet and that rock salt in their system is not good. Cats should never be left outdoors, even if they roam outside during other seasons. Bring them in. And remember, a pet carrier is not a doghouse. If you need a doghouse and are having hard times financially, you can usually find them for free. Check Craigslist under the free listings. And you can usually find them if you keep your eye open. Always provide fresh drinking water in the winter. And for more information, go to www.aspca.org. Let's leave animal abusers out in the cold. Let's not leave the animals. Thank you for joining me on this investigation, exploring true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. This is Best True Crime Podcast. No chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. I do hope you will subscribe. This podcast runs off donations only. You can drop us a donation, $35 or more, and I'll send you a signed book. Just go to www.besttruecrime.com. My name is Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Thank you for joining me on Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. Be safe out there.